no longer a slave to fear. Why? Because we have a Father who is larger than our fears. I was thinking when we were singing that song I've heard my entire life, the people say, well, we're all God's children. That's not true. It's just not true. Even if you want it to be true, it's not true. We are all God's creation. But only those who are born again through the blood of Christ are God's children. God has invited us to be his children. But everybody is not God's child. God's children will inherit eternal life. We continue our journey today through the book of Acts. We're about halfway through chapter 9. In our last session, about three weeks ago, it was called The Way. And in that session, Jesus met and he called a man named Saul to come and do something. And you are recipients, I am a recipient of what he did. Jesus called a man named Saul to come and change the world. And he did. And I can tell you this, the book of Acts also changes at this same point. The whole direction of the book of Acts begins to change. The main characters up to this point in the book of Acts through chapter 8 are Peter, John, Stephen, and Philip. But something has happened in chapter 9. Up till now, the emphasis has been on the spread of the gospel to the Jewish people. But something is happening in chapter 9. Notice this specific call of Christ to Saul. I want to read it to you, and we'll start with verse 15 of chapter 9. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as the people of Israel. Up to this point, there is no reference. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, Gentile church. The word Gentile simply means non-Jewish. Up until this point in Acts, there is no reference to any uncircumcised Gentile coming to faith in Jesus. Even on the day of Pentecost, the day that we acknowledge the church begins, there is no reference to any uncircumcised Gentile coming to Christ. No, they're not in there. Not yet. Only Jews or those who have converted to Judaism have been called up to this point. No Gentiles. And now Jesus appears to Saul and appoints him to be a messenger, appoints him to be an evangelist. To whom? The Gentiles. This is not just a turning point in the book of Acts. No, 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 no. This is the turning point in the world of men. The entire planet will be changed by what happened in chapter 8 when he called Saul to be an evangelist, a messenger. The emphasis will begin to turn to the Gentiles, and so will the book of Acts. The Gentile church, what you and I know as the Gentile church, will be born. Saul is a Jew. Let there be no mistake. Saul is a Jew, and he has just become a prominent preacher in the church of Jesus Christ. 
And he hasn't even filled out a resume. And yet he has become, because he has encountered Christ, a prominent preacher. This is the very next verse that follows Saul receiving his sight, his baptism, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit. Christ inside of Saul. Look at the next verse, verse 19. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus. Don't miss this. Damascus, that's where he's at. That's in Syria. That city's still there today. He ate some food, he regained his strength, and he stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately, immediately after he regained his strength, took some food, immediately he began preaching. He couldn't stop it. He couldn't hold it in. He couldn't keep his lips together. He began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is indeed the Son of God. In the synagogues, that's the Jewish people. He is indeed the Son of God. Saul regains his strength. The Bible says he had not eaten for three days. And what's he do? He begins preaching Jesus. He began in the Jewish synagogues. He couldn't start in what we know as churches. Why? Because there weren't any. Not what we know as churches. There aren't any churches. There aren't any Gentiles that have come to Christ. So where does he go? Into the Jewish synagogues. Saul is a Jew. And he begins preaching what to the Jews? Jesus. Yeshua in Hebrew is indeed the Son of God. Saul begins preaching in Damascus, the very thing that he traveled to Damascus to stop. Is this interesting? Does this tell you a little bit about who God is? Saul begins preaching in Damascus, the very thing that he went to Damascus to stop. What? Jesus is God's Son. That's what they're saying in Jerusalem. That's why he went to Damascus, to stop this stuff. What? That Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the chosen one, the anointed one, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Saul goes to Damascus to stop it, and he ends up in Damascus preaching it. I wonder what that was like. I don't know why, but this is interesting to me. I wonder what that was like listening to Saul in the early days. Do you think there might have been some trust issues when Saul comes to Damascus and he starts preaching Jesus as the Messiah? Do you think there might be some trust issues? Do you think there might be some people thinking, I believe he's an undercover spy. I do not believe him. Verse 21. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priest? The people knew about Saul. When I read that verse, something's clear. The people in Damascus, they must have the Damascus Gazette because they know what's going on in Jerusalem. They know. They know about Saul. <coughs> Everyone knows about Saul. Do you think the average Jew in Damascus is going to believe this new Saul? 
Is the average Jew in Damascus going to listen to him? Next verse, 22. Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. That word means Christ. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. Does anybody see the irony here? The very thing that Saul came to do is now, what? Being done to him. Whoa. The very thing that he went to Damascus to do, they're doing to him. Let's kill him. What's he going to Damascus to do? To eliminate the opposition. If you can't refute the opposition, guess what? Kill him. That stops it, doesn't it? I wonder if he could imagine himself holding all the jackets as they were stoning Stephen as he was going over the wall. You see how far he's come in such a short amount of time. And the only thing that describes this journey is he met the man named Jesus. And now he's headed for Jerusalem. Everybody listen carefully to what I'm about to say. He's in Damascus. Damascus, what we know today is Syria, the capital of Syria. And now he's heading for Jerusalem. Damascus and Jerusalem. I studied the, the, the geography, and it's 171 miles from Damascus to Jerusalem. That's the equivalency of Lexington to Knoxville, Tennessee. So if you're wondering in your mind the size and the scope of this distance and this travel and how far away are the enemies of Israel, how far away, how, long, how far did Paul, Saul have to travel? 171 miles these two cities will play a vital role in end-time events. I've read the book. Damascus and Jerusalem play a vital role in end-time events. And right now, today, in our current world, in Damascus, Syria, Russia has established a military base, and Iran has established military bases. And I see the book the prophetic book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, taking place even in our time. And it's all centered where? In Damascus. In this beginning of the Gentile church world, there are two cities that become prominent, Damascus and Jerusalem. This week, Israel carried out a secret mission, this past week, in which they attacked six Iranian missile sites around Damascus. Each of those sites had the ability to strike Israel with their new missiles. Some of those missiles came from North Korea, some from Russia. Did you hear that on the news? Do you pay attention to what's happening in these two cities? Does it matter? Well, why would I bring that up today in the book of Acts? Because Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah 17:1 that one day Damascus will disappear from the face of the earth. It will be inhabited no more. No more life will ever be there. 
In fact, Damascus is the longest existing city perhaps in world history. It has always been inhabited, but the Bible says one day it will no longer be inhabited. It will be completely destroyed. Do you know what happens tonight in Israel as the sun goes down? It's called Rosh Hashanah. It's called the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets, the first of the fall feasts. They will usher in the year 5779. 5779. You might wonder, where, does, where do they get the number 5779? Because in the Jewish calendar, 5779 is how many years it's been since God created the world. Since creation, since Adam breathed breath. 5,779. Now, what's interesting to me is not the number 5779, because even the Jews are not totally convinced that the starting point was exactly correct, because I don't know whether you noticed or not, but that's a long time ago to keep records. What's interesting to me is that they do know exactly when the Feast of Trumpets is to be, because it is on a lunar calendar and we still have the moon. So what happens tonight at sundown is they will begin Rosh Hashanah, the new Jewish year, 5779, in the Feast of Trumpets. Now why that's interesting to me is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of every Jewish feast. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Jesus fulfilled every single Jewish feast. Let me give you an example. Jesus died on the Jewish feast called Passover. Coincidence? If, it, if that was the only one, you might say yes. But he is Passover, and he died on Passover. The second Jewish feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was on the Feast of Unleavened Bread that Jesus was buried. The third Jewish feast, and they come in order, is the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. The fourth Jewish feast, and yes, again, they are in order, is the Feast of Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? Jesus came to the earth in the form and the presence of the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost. Do you know what the next feast is? In the series of feasts, those are called the spring feast. Do you know what the fall feast is? The Feast of Trumpets. Now, I'm not sitting here today telling you Jesus is coming tonight at dark in Israel. But I'm not going to tell you he's not. I hope he is. I pray he is, that he comes on the Feast of Trumpets. He has fulfilled every Jewish feast so far. Is it possible that his coming will be at the Feast of Trumpets? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to tell you what, it does give me a bit of tingling excitement at the thought that it is, but I ask you a question if it is. Are you ready for that? Are you sure? Will it matter? Verse 26. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he's gone from Damascus to Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told the apostles how Saul had seen the Lord 
on his way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Would you have believed him? Think about it. You're, you're a believer, and, and you know what? People are dying. Stephen's already dead, okay? People are dying. And here comes one of the ones who's been part of the believers dying, and he says, I'm one of you. Bring me on the inside. Would you have believed him? You see, I see this even in the church today on a smaller scale, but I see this in the church today. I've seen situations where a family wouldn't accept another believer because of some things they knew about their past. I see it, it's in the church here where some people don't want to accept another person because of something in their past. How does someone overcome that? How does someone overcome their past? They need a credible, believing witness to testify on their behalf. They need a credible, believing witness to stand next to them and say, he's real, he's with me, he's legitimate. Barnabas became that person to Saul, and I'm going to give you some counsel today. You might need to be that person to somebody else. Barnabas becomes that person to Saul. He gave a personal reference in Jerusalem to what he had seen of Saul in Damascus. Barnabas was going to use his own name. Barnabas was going to use his own reputation to stand up for Saul, giving him credibility, giving him believability. Barnabas, why, why did that matter? Because Barnabas was a trusted insider. Barnabas had believability. Saul did not, not in Jerusalem. Barnabas was one of those in Acts chapter 4 that was selling their possessions and giving the money to the apostles as the church got started. Do you know what his name means, Barnabas? Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 4, 36. <coughs> For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. It looks like his name is actually Joseph, but the apostles nicknamed him what? They nicknamed him the son of encouragement. Why do you think they would do that? Because he was an encourager. He would stand with you when perhaps no one else would stand with you. He would give you strength from himself when maybe nobody else was willing to do that. Let me just give you a personal application. I've had several Barnabases in my life, and I can tell you they gave me strength when I needed it the most. I imagine if I went around the room today you would acknowledge you've had Barnabases in your life, people who stood with you and gave you a word of encouragement, a word of support at just the right time. I remember it was years, years ago. We were only in that first building, and I'm going to tell you, times were really tight, and the church was kind of not growing very much in that particular time, and I had left my job and came here full-time, 
And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you what was going on in my mind. I still remember. What have you done? That was in my head. I was low. I was out here working on the fence row between the MacGuffin house and the church, which at that time was all trees and bushes. And I was out there working, kind of clearing that land out because uh, that was just kind of my release, I think. And I was low. I mean, I was lower than a one-eyed snake and a three-legged dog living in a swamp on a holler log. That's low. And I'm at the point in my, in my ministry where I'm, in, in my mind, I'm, what have you done? What are you doing here? And a tractor pulled up. A tractor is Rudy Gay. He was my Barnabas. He's one of the gruffest people I ever met in my life. He's the most unlikely Barnabas you will ever know. If you knew Rudy. And yet he walked over that day and he said something to me that gave me strength to go on. Everybody needs a Barnabas. And I'm going to tell you, listen, God ordains Barnabases. Maybe Rudy had no idea. You think Rudy thought, well, I'll just drive over and encourage the guy. Now, God's doing it through his people. Giving encouragement because sometimes it is hard. Sometimes it is hard. I want to be that person, that encourager to you today because I know the power of an encouraging word from a fellow believer. I know what it is to hear a word from a fellow believer who is actually giving you a word from God through the Holy Spirit. It looks like it worked. Barnabas has stood up with Saul. It looks like it worked because of this next verse, verse 28. So Saul stayed with the apostles. Now, he was an outsider, right? But Barnabas has stood up with him. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly, preaching boldly in Jerusalem, not Damascus, boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, and, but they tried to murder him too. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. They tried to murder Saul in Damascus, and now they're trying to murder Saul in Jerusalem. I'm going to ask you a question. Here it comes. Do you still want to stand next to him? You better think about it. When you become an encourager, a Holy Spirit-led encourager, do you want to stand next to someone they put a hit out on? Barnabas was willing to let go of the past failures of Saul. Don't make this difficult. You see, Barnabas was willing to let go of the past failures of Saul and stand with him in front of other believers. He was willing to forget about Saul's pig pen days. Let it go. Barnabas, the encourager, enabled Saul to meet his divine appointment. That's how I read this. Barnabas, through the encouragement, allowed Saul to meet and fulfill his divine appointment. Why? He needs to preach in Jerusalem. Forgetting what is behind 
Barnabas was able to do that and encourage others to do that too. What? Chad read it a few minutes ago, forgetting what is behind me. Forgetting what is behind me. Forgetting what is behind me. Do you have trouble with that regarding others? There's two points to this. Let's begin with others. Do you have trouble forgetting what is behind other people? Do you know some people that have got some pretty checkered past? Maybe they spent a lot of quality time in the pig pen and you knew about it and you're just having a hard time getting over that? Yeah, I know who they say they are, but you know what? I'm, I, know, I know who they really are. Do you have any trouble with that? Because here's the second part. Do you have any trouble with that about yourself? That you also remember that you too also spent a lot of quality time in the pig pen. And you're having a hard time letting go of that about you. And maybe you're having a hard time letting go of that about others as well. What about Saul? What about Saul? Do you think he might have trouble getting over his past? Standing there that day that they bring their jackets and hold these Saul, and his Saul was endorsing the murder of Stephen. Would that be hard to get over while you're preaching Jesus? I loved what Saul, who eventually would become called Paul, says to the church at Philippi later on in his ministry. The words I'm about to read to you have encouraged and empowered people now for some 2,000 years. It's found in Philippians 3.12. We read it earlier. I want to read it again. Paul says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved all these things or I've already reached perfection. Paul acknowledges I'm still messed up. Paul says, I'm still messed up. I got the Holy Spirit. I'm on my way to the promised land, but I still got this sin nature thing inside of me. I don't want you to think I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus has possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved perfection. But I focus on this one thing. Church, you know everybody in this room can learn something today right here. No, I'm not perfect. And no, neither are you. But we press on. I press on. I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us, calling us, hey, hey, forget the past, let it go. I got a future for you that'll blow your socks off, but you got to let go of that stuff in your rearview mirror, not just for yourself. Let's start there, okay? Let's start there. That if you've got some things in your life that your quality time in the pig pen that you're still replaying in your life, let it go. And then look around at that person and let it go. Saul was never going to fulfill God's calling until he could let go of the past. And neither will you regarding others or regarding yourself. Because I make a, I make a testimony today. If you measured me today by my past, before I had my encounter with Christ, before I stepped out of that pig pen, I could not be your minister today. 
If you want to measure me by my past, I'll step down right now. Yes, there is a need. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Yes, there is a need for prudence. There is a need for wisdom regarding the believability of someone's past. Yes, I am not naive. I am not. There is a need for prudence. There is a need for wisdom when it comes to believing someone's past life. But there must also be room for a Barnabas. There must also be room for the testimony of John the Baptist. Let me read it to you. Matthew 3.8. John the Baptist says to these people, Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Prove that you have repented. Prove that you're not still living your life in the pig pen and pretending like you've repented. You know how you do that? You get out of the pig pen. Paul's preaching in Damascus convinced Barnabas that his repentance was real. There's never a shortage of those who will hold on to the past. Acts chapter 9 says that all the believers in Jerusalem were afraid of Saul. Afraid to trust this man who says, who says he has encountered Christ. But one stood with Saul. The son of encouragement stood with Saul. And do you know what that really means? And you, I'm going to tell you, don't just look at Barnabas. You know what that really means? The Holy Spirit inside of Barnabas. The Holy Spirit. You see, Barnabas is not just Barnabas. Barnabas is Barnabas with Jesus inside of him. The Holy Spirit inside of Barnabas was encouraging Barnabas, go stand with Saul. Let's move on. Barnabas got Saul into the group, into the inner circle. I want to read verse 28 and 30 again. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. Stayed with them, preached with them, saw the outsider. Look what Barnabas did. Saul the outsider became Saul the insider. Barnabas got him inside. Preaching boldly. Preaching boldly. I'm going to tell you, encouragement will do that. Discouragement hardly ever does. Saul is publicly debating the Greek-speaking Jews, and now they've put a hit out on him. Do you see why preachers need encouragers? Notice that the very same people that were afraid of Saul are now protecting him. Isn't that interesting? The very people who were afraid of him are protecting him and sneaking him out of Jerusalem towards Caesarea where he will head off to Tarsus. And then something amazing happens in verse 31. Here's where it all changes. Something amazing is about to happen in verse 31. It hasn't happened, not in the book of Acts, for some time. God allows a time of peace. God, he's in charge. He allows a time of peace to come upon the church. This peace follows the attempt on Saul's life in chapter 9. And God applies a time of supernatural, a time of supernatural peace. He can do that. You think he can't do that? Verse 31, <clears throat> the church then, well, what's then? 
They've just put a hit out on Saul and he had to sneak out of town. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in fear of the Lord. Let's make that number one. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, let's make that number two. And it also grew in numbers, number three. There's a pause in the midst of the spiritual war, a ceasefire of sorts. But did you notice what was happening specifically after Saul joins the apostles in Jerusalem? The church grew. The church grew. The church grew. And I want you to listen. Here's where we're going right now. The church grew. Number one, the church grew in the fear of God. Number two, the church grew in encouragement from the Holy Spirit. There's another translation that says in comfort. Encouraging comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the church grew numerically. Is it possible for the true church to not grow? Here comes a theological question. Is it possible for the true church to not grow? Let me answer it with this. Everything in creation that's alive grows. Give me an example of something that, that, that's not true. Everything in creation that's alive grows. The only thing that stops living things from growing is death. So I'll ask again, is it possible for the true church to not grow? Can you grow a church numerically without also growing the church in the fear of God? Can you grow a church numerically without also growing a church in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit? So I'm going to ask everybody a pointed question now. Would you, have you joined this growing church? And when I say that, the first thing people want to think is numerically. No, 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 forget the numerically for now. Would you join a growing church? You see, the idea of you joining the growing church, because this is the church in the book of Acts, is the fact that you begin growing. You begin growing. That doesn't mean you come in and you park yourself here and then you leave and say, yeah, I've joined the church. No, no, no. You're only joining the church when you begin to grow in the church. So I'll ask you again, would you join this growing church? Is there another one? Is there one less dangerous, one less controversial? Yeah, can I, can I, can I find a stagnant church and grow? You know what? They never ask you to do anything. And guess who joins Barnabas in the business of encouragement? In this growing church, the Holy Spirit. Coincidence? Do you see those points, how they go together? Many don't. They lived in the fear of the Lord with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And the church is growing. Do you fear God? I don't mean a fear that makes you run away from Him. I mean a fear, a righteous fear that makes you run toward Him. Have you experienced the encouragement of the Holy Spirit? Would you join this growing church? Because what happens in the book of Acts, and you've heard me say through this whole series so far, one of the things that has really convicted me is when I studied the church in the book of Acts, the American church doesn't look anything like it. Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing. 
I see very few similarities. These people had committed their lives to spiritual growth, that they're, they're forgetting what is behind them and they're pressing on toward this goal. They're seeking after the righteousness of God, allowing God to totally radically transform their lives. They become outlets of the Holy Spirit. They're growing, 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 growing. They're not watching people grow, they're growing. Would you join that church? Would you keep preaching? After they put a hit on you, would you stand next to somebody who's had a hit put out on them? Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is good at doing something. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but I noticed it. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is, as he goes through the book of Acts, he gives a status report that different parts of the book of Acts. I'll give you a hint. Here's what I noticed. In every one of these status reports throughout the book of Acts from Luke, the church is growing in all three. Every one of them. It's growing in the fear of God, it's growing in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it's growing numerically all the way throughout the book. Let me give you a few examples. Acts 2.44. The context of this one is Peter preaching his first sermon and 3,000 people are baptized. Verse 44. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possession and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while, does this sound like the American church? Anything at all. And all the while, they're praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You know what they're doing? They're growing in the fear of the Lord. They're growing in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And they're growing numerically. Nobody's coming just to watch and see how this thing plays out today. Come, let's go see the show. You see, here's where I'm going. I ask you a question. Would you join this growing church? You would if you wanted to grow. You would if you wanted to grow. Do you want to grow? Do you want to watch? Let me give you another example. Acts 4 verse 1, the context is Peter and John. They're preaching in the Jerusalem temple. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there's resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. Well, you know what? The church is growing numerically, but why is it growing numerically? Because the people in the church are growing in the fear of the Lord, and they're growing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God's adding to the church. Everybody's growing. Would you join this church? You would if you wanted to grow. I'll give you another example. This context is Peter and John. They've been in jail. And after the jail, they, there's this incredible prayer meeting. Verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned, they felt. Is this the American church? 
Is this you? And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them. Because those who owned lands and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. Would you join that church? No, I don't like that church. I like this other church. Let me give you another one. These are all status reports of how's the church going? So how is the church going? Let's compare that to our church. How's it going? This one's about Ananias and Sapphira after they dropped dead for lying through the Holy Spirit. They weren't receiving the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, 12. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared join them. Huh? No one else dared join them, even though all the people had them had high regard for them, yet more and more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, and crowds of both men and women were becoming believers. It's growing. Is there opposition? Yes, there's opposition. One more. This context is Stephen is selected to serve tables, and he will become the first church martyr. Acts 6, verse 7. And so God's message continued to spread. They've killed Stephen. It doesn't matter. God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And many of the Jewish priests were converted. Why? Because when you see a man like Stephen, give everything he's got. Because he has become a believer. Truth becomes real. Would you join this growing church? Do you see what's happening? The church continues to grow. The church is unstoppable. The true church that lives in the fear of God. The true church that lives under the encouraging power of the Holy Spirit will grow numerically. Why? Because it's unstoppable. It's not a move of man. It's a move of God. What's inside of Paul and Saul and us is Jesus Christ. You try to stop him. Go ahead. You'll hurt yourself. They were growing in the fear of God and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and numerically. Jesus told us this would happen. Anybody wants to read it? He said it would happen. Back in Matthew 16, verse 15, he, Jesus said, asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. What? Learn what? Who revealed to Simon that Jesus is the Son of the living God? Who? You didn't learn it from any human being, Jesus said. The Holy Spirit's revealed it. Verse 18, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, ah, Jesus will build my Jesus church. It's not our church. And the, all the powers of hell, all the powers of hell will not conquer or stop his church. 
Would you join this growing church? Is there another one? Now back to Saul sneaking out of town. I want to read it one more time. Verse 31. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And it became stronger as the believers lived in fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And they grew in numbers. A moment of peace in the midst of war. They are becoming stronger and stronger because they're growing they are growing and growing, growing in the fear of the Lord and the wisdom and the guidance and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And they're growing in numbers too. Saul, the preacher, is introduced in power in Acts chapter 9. And he will disappear. Listen, he will disappear until Acts chapter 11. He's gone off toward Tarsus. He's gone to Caesarea to travel to Tarsus, he's on a mission of God, and he's heading toward the Gentiles. Somebody say hallelujah, because you're one of those Gentiles. I don't know if any of them realize it yet. When I get to this point, I don't know if any of them realize it yet, but Peter's about to get a similar message from Jesus next week in Acts chapter 10, when he will encounter the Roman officer named Cornelius which will become the first Gentile and his family to come to Christ. <clears throat> I close today with a couple of thoughts. Number one, would you consider yourself an encourager? I'm asking you, and it's personal. Would you consider yourself an encourager? Are you a Barnabas to someone, to anyone? I've noticed that people who have never been encouraged often have trouble encouraging others. Have y'all noticed that? Somebody that their whole life never got a lot of encouragement and now they don't know how to do it because they never got it. Maybe that's you. It's like you need to receive it in order to be able to give it, this thing called encouragement. I want to tell you, one of the primary roles of the church is that we encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching. That when you come to church, I hope you're encouraged here. I hope that you're encouraging each other to stay in this race. So today I want to be the one who encourages you. I stand with you today. I will defend you with the value of whatever my name is. I stand with you. I will not speak against you. I will speak for you. I will stand with you. I join today with the Holy Spirit to encourage you Ninevites. And when I go out somewhere in different places, maybe far away, and they say, where are you from? I go to the Nineveh Christian Church, and they say, Nineveh? Who would name a church Nineveh? Anybody knows anything about the Old Testament? You know, the Ninevites were the bad guys. And I say, yeah, that was an E-H Nineveh. We're the A-H Nineveh. We're the good guys. You got the wrong group of Ninevites. You know, the largest recorded revival in the Old Testament took place in Nineveh. Where one man, Jonah, walked through the city and proclaimed, the day of the Lord is coming. If you don't repent in the entire city, turn to God. I want to be that Nineveh. I'm willing to forget your pig pen past. And some of you I know 
personally. I'm willing to forget your pig pen past if you're willing to forget mine. Forgetting what is behind us, we press on toward our future in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're not a slave to sin. That's those people in the pig pen. Romans 15, verse 5. May God give this patience. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. And then all of you can join together. All of you church people can join together with one voice giving praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept each other. Are you hearing the words of God? Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Today I give you some counsel. Let go of the past. I encourage you to let go of your past first and then let go of the past of those who have come to Christ around you. Finally, would you join this church described in the book of Acts? Some of you have been coming here for a long time. Some of you in this room right now, today, have been coming here for a long time, but you refuse to make a commitment here. Why? Why? Because you feel like coming here, if I make a commitment here, they're going to ask me to grow. And you're right. What are you waiting for? I encourage you today to come and commit yourself to grow here. I encourage you to come here intentionally with the objective that I will grow in the fear of the Lord. I will grow under the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And I will grow as God brings more and more and more and more and more people to salvation through Christ. This is the work of the church. Will you do that today? Or are you waiting for one of those less controversial churches that just lets you come and watch the show? Do you think you're here today by coincidence? Do you think you heard this message today by coincidence? There's only one true church and you are here today because of God's divine providence. There's not another church. And by the way, all the powers of hell cannot stop this one. His church. This one, and when I say church, I mean universally there is only one church. This church is founded by Jesus Christ. And this church, let there be no doubt, is growing in the fear of God. This church is the body of Christ, and there is not another one. This church is growing in the encouragement and the comfort of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. The church is the bride of Christ, and you can't be married to another. This is it. Would you join this church? Would you stand with this group of people? Joining this church is you becoming a Barnabas. You stand with us in this battle that's raging in the heavenly realms. He didn't say it'd be easy. They tried to murder Saul. He only said it'd be worth it. Fast forward to the end of Saul's life, and he's about to have his head cut off because he joined the church. What? That's not a very good motivational speech. Fast forward to the end of Paul's life, and he's joined the church. He, the church is the body of Christ. It's not a building 
He's joined the church, and he's at the end of his life, and he finds himself in a Roman prison. Was it worth it? I'll close today with reading what he says at the end of his life, his last writing. His last writing is to 2 Timothy, it's what we call it. Here's what he says. Is it worth it? Let's read it. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead, when, not if, when he appears to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound or wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will teach them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that the Lord, that God has given you. As for me, here comes Paul's last words, or some of his last words. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. Somebody say hallelujah. And now I get the prize. The prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And this prize is not just for me. Somebody say amen again. This prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So I got a question. A few minutes ago when I was talking about Jerusalem and Damascus and I talked about this Feast of Trumpets and some people believe that Jesus will return on the Feast of Trumpets fulfilling this this Jewish holiday. Does that encourage you? Or does that scare your britches off? Which one? He says this prize is not just for me. It's for all who long for my appearing. I long for his appearing. Would you join this growing church? I, I'm going to ask Chad to come out for the invitation. i give you one last word of encouragement. There's a crown of righteousness awaiting. It is unspeakable value. Unspeakable. No one, I can't comprehend its value. That... that It'll never perish, spoil, or fade. You never get old. Nobody ever gets sick. God's going to take my soul, my spirit, my person, put it in a brand new Terry body. It'll never wear out. Would you turn that down? There's a, there's a crown of righteousness awaiting those who long for His appearing. Today, would you join this church of Jesus Christ? You've been coming here a long time. Maybe today's the day you need to begin to grow. Let's stand. The invitation's open.